The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Sequel Quest, Episode 117. A sequel to Disney's Flight of the Navigator. Welcome to Sequel Quest, the podcast where Adam, Jeff, and Jeremy invite you on a cinematic journey to create prequels, sequels, and reboots to your favorite movie franchises. Joined by special guests along the way. Sequel Quest is go for long, so let the adventure begin now. Next, we've got a long trip ahead of us. Tune into Sequel Quest. Do not know Sequel Quest. You geek, it's the podcast where Adam, Jeff, and Jeremy pitch sequels, prequels, and reboots to our favorite movies. Download it now. Compliance. Well, what do you think? <laughs> These guys have great movie ideas. They're as big as a zigzag. What's a zigzag? Kind of like a hippo with feathers. Okay, turkey, take it away. <laughs> Thanks, Max, and welcome to the latest episode of Sequel Quest. We're taking to the skies this time around, but let's meet the crew of navigators who are going to guide us through this audio adventure. First up, Jeff, do you want a new Coke, classic Coke, cherry Coke, diet Coke, or caffeine-free Coke? Cherry Coke, please. Compliance. Next, it's the man who still doesn't know if Twisted Sister is a her or a him. It's Jeremy. I was going to say vanilla orange Coke, but what? <laughs> you got to watch the movie again, Jeremy. That's a Sarah Jessica uh, Parker line. Uh. And realizing that keeping a puck Marin as a pet was a pretty bad idea. I'm Adam. <laughs> And Jeremy, hit them up top if they didn't get any of those references like you. What movie are we talking about tonight? All right. So Flight of the Navigator, the 1986 Disney flick starring Joey Kramer, Paul Rubens, Howard Hessman, and Sarah Jessica Parker. A 12-year-old boy named David Freeman goes missing in 1978, only to reappear magically once more in 1986. In the eight years past, he has not aged. At NASA, David connects with an alien ship nicknamed Max, who needs the star maps that were transferred into the boy's brain as part of an alien experiment. After a scan at David's brain, Max takes on the characteristics of a young Earthling and bonds with David as the ship's new navigator. And for some odd reason, before I rewatched this movie, I totally thought this was the Kurt Russell movie. Like, he was the kid, and then, no, it's definitely not. What? So The computer wore tennis shoes, huh? Which, uh, which one? I, yeah, I don't know. I, I just had it in the mind that it was him, there were aliens, the ship, I, I don't know. And so this is definitely a favorite of a lot of people out there. Probably a lot of people who had the Disney Channel back in the day. Jeff, is that where you caught it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I watched at least, you know, it was one of those movies that you would turn on and it would be halfway through. So you'd watch one part of it over and over again. Like, you'd never know how it actually began because yeah. you never caught the beginning of it. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's for the best, personally. I think it's the last <laughs> half of the movie most kids would care about. But what's interesting enough is Flight of the Navigator, it actually did not start out as a Walt Disney Pictures film, though it was submitted to the studio initially. As a result, actually, if you watch it, you won't see any Disney in the actual credits for the film except for that opening logo. 
Because mm. it was produced by a group called Producers Sales Organization, oh, <laughs> which sounds very Hollywood, who also <laughs> made a little film called Once Bitten with... Jim Carrey. Yeah. But it, what it was, was the Disney had a new CEO at the time, had Michael Eisner, and then had Jeffrey Katzenberg, who he brought over. And so they picked it up for distribution, but then ultimately started participating in the final production of the film and getting it all together for release. So... Yeah, it's interesting. It technically is this independent film, but interestingly enough, I did not grow up with this film, though I saw it at the video store frequently. For some reason, I always got it mixed up with the Disney TV movie, The Boy Who Could Fly. Streaming it a few times now on Disney Plus was my first exposure to this movie. And I gotta say, I was pleasantly surprised. Gotta love that Puck Marin. But uh, Jeremy, how about you? Where did you come in on Flight of the Navigator? Having rewatched it today, I remember, like, visuals from this movie. I just did not remember the story at all. And I'm not a fan. Oh, What's interesting, too, is you have to look at the history of Disney, and Jeff, I'm sure you can chime in on this as well, but in 1986, when this movie is coming out, Disney is in a slump, man. They, they've not had a good 1980s so far. <laughs> I, and this year, like, they put out The Great Mouse Detective, which was not a hit for them, but it was their animated feature for the year. Then they were doing a lot of Disney Channel TV movies like Mr. Boogity and something called Fuzz Bucket, but they had recently also gotten into live action non-family films with Touchstone Pictures. So they were actually releasing a lot of R-rated movies this year, Down and Out in Beverly Hills, Ruthless People, both with Bette Midler. They put a lot of money on Bette Midler, let me tell you. And The Color of Money with Tom Cruise and Paul Newman. All of those were released in this same year as this, which you would feel like, okay, is this a Disney movie? Well, it's kind of in between, you know, because it actually has like curse words, it has foul language. It gets kind of dramatic at certain points. And yet it is, you know, a fantasy adventure and a boy making friends with a otherworldly creature. But Jeff, when you would catch it in the sections you watched, what was your impression of this film? Was it a favorite or was it just kind of like you said, eh, it's on? Again, I would always watch it. So it was definitely it was one of those I feel like there was an era of movies where there was a whole bunch of like young teen main characters and for me like Stand By Me way too adult for me like that was that was beyond me even like uh, The Explorers that was a little edgy and a little scary for me this so basically one... anything with River Phoenix is what you're saying oh that's right River yeah. Phoenix was in there yeah, that's true but like this and to be honest like i was kind of scared of this movie i did not like like that the whole scene when he meets all the aliens i hated that scene that scene scared the heck out of me so i would always want to watch the beginning where he you know travels through time or whatever uh and then the end when he's just flying around and getting rescued like i could do that but that that scene right there like i would usually try and skip that scene Wow, that's like they're they're just little Muppets, Jeff. You don't love these little puppet Did characters. You, have you watched that scene again? That scene's scary, dude. It's like especially you're like would you show a, a four year old that show? 
Well, I don't know. My daughter, yes. My son, no. My son would have <laughs> nightmares. My daughter loves everything scary. She loves Nightmare Before Christmas, all of that. So I think she would be fine. But yeah, giant eyeball, monster to eat your hat, slime, venom, symbiote creature, has a cold. <laughs> Yeah, I, mean, I, I could see that, Jeff. I mean, I can understand how that might be a little intense. Um, I mean, for me, if I had actually seen this when I was a kid, I think I would have been on board. But like I mentioned, just the last 30 minutes, then it becomes fancy free and fun, you know, as soon as he meets the, the alien spaceship. But, Jeremy, you say you're not a fan. Was there any moment of levity or a part of it that gave you a little smirk? Uh, there were from time to time, but... It felt super slow in getting the whole thing started. And then the kid really doesn't go anywhere. I mean, he goes from NASA back home. He goes into the outer atmosphere for a couple seconds, then goes back down. Yeah. Right. And then under the ocean. And it's like, just, okay, we have to put the ship somewhere so that it's out of sight. So let's go here. Let's go there. Let's go underwater. Yeah. Sighting in Tokyo. Eh, like... The kid has the maps. At least make him fly the ship to the to the planet, do the scan there to transfer the memories, and then bring him back. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it is interesting when you think about it that way that they do limit themselves, and for some reason they're just going to stay earthbound. You know, back to Jeff's point about, you know, these films starring young people, I think a lot of people probably assume that this is the same kid henry thomas from et which it is not but you know kid with dark hair and a striped shirt it's the 80s okay and they make references to it like i mean big al he just wanted to call home but what's interesting is this kid is actually his name is joey kramer and he was in a couple movies before this that i find interesting number one he was in runaway with tom Selleck and who jeff oh my gosh that's right and he said like i was i was in a movie with magnum pi and gene simmons from kiss how awesome is that and he was also in a movie with one of jeff's favorites scott bacula called i man which was also a disney tv movie where he inhales this gas and he becomes indestructible and then his son apparently also gets exposed to the gas played by joey kramer and he becomes indestructible I kid, I guess. Um, so anyway, so he had he had a little bit of a career. That is until 2016. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, well, I mean, we got to face the facts. He's probably not available for a sequel. I mean, unless we're setting this sequel in the past. He ran into trouble with the law again. Uh, he robbed a bank in British Columbia and not doing so hot. His IMDb <laughs> profile is his mugshot, which is so sad. Oh. And I was watching an interview because there was a British Blu-ray release of this film, and they did a whole, you know, interviews with the director, all the cast members, producers, everybody. And there's this great, like, 15-minute interview with him, and he tells so much, and he's so, he seems like just the nice, average guy. And then this happened a year later, oh, and he's robbing no. a bank, and you're like, oh, no. And then it says, like, that he had multiple run-ins with the law over the years, with yeah. weapons, c charges, and all sorts of stuff, drugs, like, intent to sell, and all this stuff. And you're like, oh, no. Like, it's so sad, because he didn't do a movie after one year after this he did a movie called stone fox based on some old novel and then he never worked again 
you know, maybe that had something to do with it. But it's 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 kind of sad when you see that that's where it goes because he is a great child actor. I mean, he's really believable. Just seems like a nice kid, and he's got just the right amount of attitude. But on a lighter note, perhaps uh, we do have the voice of Max was Paul Rubens, aka Pee Wee. Hey. Although didn't I see he was he was credited as Paul Mall or something? Yeah. So what he said was when he took the role, see Paul Rubens was already doing a stage show of Pee Wee Herman called the Pee Wee mm. Herman Show. I'm sure that's where they found him. I also Pee Wee's Playhouse was premiering this same year on Saturday morning TV. Ah. And so he basically said, I want to preserve the magic of this movie, and I want it to kind of just be Nosferatu as Max Shrek. Nobody knew who Max Shrek was, or Frankenstein, the monster, as himself. And I think he just wanted to have it where people could say, no, Max is a creature of fantasy, and that's who he is. <laughs> and so somebody named Paul Mall voiced him, sure, but who's Paul Mall? You'll never know. And it's not Pee Wee Herman, <laughs> except that it totally is. There is no denying that it is Pee Wee Herman as soon as he downloads the star charts. And you're just like, wow. I mean, he's yeah. just doing the whole shtick. <laughs> but it's funny, because before that, like, the voice the entire rest of the time, I would have never guessed it was Pee Wee. I always think it was just Max doing a Pee-wee impression because we all did the Pee-wee impression. But the normal compliance, like that doesn't, you know, as opposed to like Star Tours where what's his name on Star Tours totally sounds like Pee-wee. Rex. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's weird. It's like it's like in this movie they modulate him down and on mm. Star Tours they modulate him up. You yeah, know, so he's never exactly an even-keeled vocal performance. <laughs> uh, but it's actually interesting, too, because a different actor performed Max on the set, kind of like Rocket in Guardians of the Galaxy, you know? So all the <laughs> actors know this guy as Rocket, and then later on, this famous person puts their voice in. But what I find interesting, too, the movie's coming out, it's a modest hit, but then it was on video for years. Like, why did they not, in the promotion, just say, like, Pee Wee Herman as Max? I have to believe he had some contractual thing. But just imagine how much more popular this movie would have been if they could have used Pee Wee Herman in the advertising. Mm. You guys know I run in retro-loving circles. We're on the retro network now because of that. And I hear this movie mentioned uh, occasionally, but it's not even, like, brought up in regular conversation the way so many other films of It's like, Mac and Me gets more press <laughs> than Flight of the Navigator. <laughs> so I have two directors that were considered and wanted to do this film. One of them deals in suspense and horror. The other with aliens can you tell me who you think we might be dealing with here one of them loves a split screen he's very good friends with carrie nobody brian de palma wow <laughs> but the second one very familiar with aliens james cameron was also in talks to make this film but instead they hired director of rocky and the karate kid john avildsen but he wanted to turn it into an intergalactic battle film which is not what was in the script <laughs> so they fired him and they're just like uh. are you gonna make our script he's like no i'm gonna make the movie i want to make they're like okay i'm sorry you have to leave <laughs> <laughs> and so they ended up hiring the director of grease 
niece, a guy named Randall Kleiser. And what's funny about him is he was roommates with George Lucas right before Mm -hmm. he got big. And so when he started developing this film, of course he goes to George Lucas. And Lucas is like, uh, whatever you do, I see your plans here. Don't make the interior of the ship so shiny. Because that reflective surface is going to be very hard to shoot. But Randall Kleiser's like, we did it anyway. And I'm glad we did. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Speaking of which, though, the CGI used for the ship, I mean, that was pretty groundbreaking for the time. It does morphing, you know, like it changes shape and all these things. It was actually done by the director's brother. He had worked on Tron. Mm. And so he was Mm. on that cutting edge with Disney with these special effects. And then they used a few like optical illusion tricks, you know, like with the steps to make them look like they were floating and things like that. But yeah, and then interestingly enough, speaking of the ships, one of those spaceship models actually did survive, but it's now been repainted and it's part of a restaurant at walt disney world (laughs) so it's just this big red rocket ship now on top of a a restaurant where you can get a hot dog or space pizza or wherever they are trying to serve you over there Mm. but let me ask you guys this who were some of the familiar faces well the obvious one is sarah jessica parker but beyond her faces i recognized but i'm not recognizing their names yeah the face like how, the the doctor uh howard hessman uh-huh. i see him a lot well he was uh, he was best known i think for wkrp in cincinnati right oh, and then right. i think shortly after this he was the original teacher on head of the class and then he got replaced by a Scotsman. They shot it mostly in Florida, and then because they were getting this, like, tax shelter deal for filming in Norway, like, all the interior stuff dealing with the ship, like, that was all filmed in Norway, so they moved Mm. the kid out there for a couple months. Like, I think he said he was there for two months or three months to shoot all this stuff in there. But I gotta say, of all the characters in the film, Sarah Jessica Parker, she says she has no recollection, really, of the movie. I can totally see that. (laughs) She was a young actress just looking for work, and she got hired in this little film, and she did her part. But she does have the charisma. You can see why she went on to have a career. I mean, she's so much fun in her few scenes. In fact, you know, like, up at the top of the show, I quoted two of her lines. I think it's the other element that makes this film a very fun nostalgia piece, because it is so 80s. There's all this, like, new wave music. You know, of course, the Beach Boys were having a resurgence in the 80s, so when they're singing to I Get Around, you know, and all that, like, it's fun. And I I think you can point to it and say, you know what, it's a real nice time capsule, especially, you know, if you're gonna mention New Coke, and even when Mm -hmm. Dave even gets into his room that they have set up in nasa there's tons of 80s toys in that room right there's transformers there's a gi joe sleeping bag in one area and if you guys are interested i'm going to be dissecting all the toys in those few shots (laughs) in an article so i will be sharing that on social media for all to see another weird fun fact as far as the legacy of this film childish gambino aka donald glover recorded a trippy song it's called flight of the navigator you know you can listen to it on youtube kind of uses the voice effect that sounds like the max roll compliance you know in the intro it's got space sounds in it but like the lyrics aren't really based around the film at all there actually have been rumors of a remake for years. Colin Trevorrow, sometime in the last five years, he was developing it, but he said that just kind of fizzled out. He's no longer involved in that. 
So, but that being the case, obviously, it seems like there's a a contingent of people out there who really would enjoy seeing more of Flight of the Navigator, and that is what we are here to bring you tonight. So, I think it's time to jump into those pitches. Jeff, you want to start us off? Sure. Oh, although, you know what? I need to change my title, don't I? Because I was going to call mine Flight of the Navigator 2 Back to Phelon. Except for, I realized after I had written my pitch, we don't actually go to Phelon. So I'm not going to call it that. We're just going to call it Flight of the Navigator 2. Okay, so um, this takes place in 1985 when a 19-year-old David comes home for college for the summer. The Puck Marin is still around, but has stayed home with his brother Jeff while David was away at college. David in college and through high school and stuff like that has kind of become a much more of like an 80s young adult uh, where he sees the, the stuff of childhood is very childish, including the Puck Marin. So he doesn't really associate with it. Uh, instead, Jeff is actually the one that has grown so close to the Puck Marin. And while David was away, not only did he care for the Puck Marin, but he actually learned how to communicate with it just like Max did. So identifying his different grunts and squeals and whatever. Jeff, we find out, and then we're, you know, the, the, the movie's kind of shifting focus to figure out Jeff's story is that Jeff doesn't have many friends. In fact, he usually stays home and has adventures with the Puck Marin going out into the woods, hanging out by himself, but he's 15 now. So David coming home from college is like, are you seriously playing around with this little, like, come on, dude, you got to get out there, like meet a girl, like get a life. The parents are getting on him as well. So they kind of get into it one night and Jeff just kind of like throws a tantrum and runs off, taking the Puck Marin in his backpack. And I'm going to go and like into my fort or whatever out into out in the, in the woods. And all of a sudden, Max shows up. And Max explains that he was halfway home, or however long seven years would take, and realized that because of the time travel, he had actually traveled back to a time before Benpuka Minor, where the Puck Marin was from, was destroyed. And so, looking for David, he needs the navigator's help to get that information that they can actually go back, because now... Seven years has passed. It's just about to be destroyed. He needs the navigator's help to get back to that planet to destroy the comet. So Jeff runs back to tell David, but David is way too cool for this now. So he doesn't even believe. He's kind of convinced himself that the whole Max thing might have been a hallucination, and he refuses to go. So Jeff's like... Especially because, you know, now he's adopted this Puck Marin. He, he really, yeah, doesn't want to just let it see its its home planet destroyed. So he goes instead and lies to Max, tells him that there is a technology that has allowed David to transfer all of his information to Jeff. And so now Jeff can be his navigator. So Max takes him and the Puck Marin along. They make it all the way to Benpuka Minor. Uh, and that's, of course, when Max figures out that Jeff actually doesn't have any of the information in his brain so that there's no way to actually stop this comet. So they end up going to uh, Benpuka Minor and seeing like all of the Puck Marin's family or race, species, whatever. They're just, you know, they're all over the place. But Jeff knows how to communicate with them, so tries to, to warn them that they have to like flee the planet 
but <laughs> they're puck marins. Like, where are they going to go? Like, they, they, they don't have any ability to leave. So then after all of this, we kind of get to the climax of the movie where Max comes to the realization that the only way that they can save this planet is he has to crash himself into the comet, which would destroy both of them. Jeff, of course, then realizes that if that happens, one, he feels bad that Max then, like, is going to die, but he realizes that if that does happen, he's going to be stuck on Vinpuka Minor by himself or with, you know, the, the Puck Marins. And so he volunteers to go as a navigator. Is it then, you know, having another person there has to make this easier that you can try and whatever and, like, figure out the, 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 the technical details. And then... I'm guessing at this point, I didn't come up with a name, but I'm guessing they will actually have named the Puck Marin. So he decides he's going to come with Jeff and Max as well. So they take off, streaking towards the comet, and Jeff is kind of like recalling back fond memories with his family and back when David wasn't such a jerk. And he reflects back on this one moment where David said something about how when he traveled through time, it created a time vortex that destroyed anything that was around. And then he snaps back into reality and tells Max about that. And Max does some quick computations and realizes that if they do travel back in time right in front of the comet, it would actually destroy the comet and suck them back through time. However, it would have that same, that same problem is that it could very well vaporize Jeff. But, of course, they, they you know, we're going to go for it anyway. They do some form of like, all right, everybody's hands in or whatever that would be in the, in, you know, 1985. So they go for that. There's a flash of light. And then we're back on Earth. And in back on Earth, we're at the Freeman house. And the Freeman house is in a panic because it's been a week since Jeff stormed off. David feels horrible because he feels like it was his fault he, he keeps wondering was he really telling the truth about max so every night he goes onto the roof and he's shooting off fireworks just like he asked jeff to do back in his alternate reality and one day like again a, a, a week after jeff disappeared one firework shoots up into the air and goes clang because it bounces off max as max lands or you know hovers above the roof balcony sort of a thing and Jeff comes out and embraces David. And as he does, and then the parents come out and embrace and stuff like that. And then David turns around and Max looks down at him and, and calls to him and says, I miss you, Navigator, or something along those lines. And the parents come out and David exchanges a look with his parents and his parents kind of give him a, a nod. And so then he decides, you know what? I'm going to go with you, Max, and explore the rest of the universe. And then as Max does one of his little laughs, the ship heads straight for the camera as credits roll. <laughs> of course, Jeff makes Jeff the star. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> I didn't even remember go. the brother's name was Jeff. <laughs> That's how little Aww. impact he had on me. This is the thing with this whole movie, and we'll get into it after the pitches, but there is a lot of time travel discrepancy. <laughs> and we're going to have to figure out what we can do in our pitch to uh, figure that all out. Which is something I attempted to do in my sequel, Flight of the Navigator 2, Starflight. It's 1986, again. 
David Freeman is getting ready to join the Air Force. Apparently, his time travel adventure with Max left the young man with a desire to return to the skies and an uncanny ability to operate any aircraft. In fact, this is what gets David busted on the 4th of July when he tries to impress his high school crush, Debbie, by taking her for a joyride in a Cessna plane owned by his flight instructor, Ned. But while in the air, Max's spaceship flies past the small plane, distracting the former navigator and causing David to fly wildly trying to catch up to his alien friend, with Debbie screaming all the way. This leads the young pilot into interrupting a flight test at Cape Canaveral and being forced down by military police. After being interrogated by a federal agent named Crocker and told his crime just made him ineligible for joining any branch of the military, David is heartbroken. But more frightening is the fact that he could be going to prison, as he's reminded, you're not a kid anymore. The next morning, as David is about to be incarcerated, an official from NASA shows up to take custody of David on a matter of national security, which Crocker resents. Arriving at NASA, David is dumbfounded to come into contact with himself? Another David sits calmly wearing an otherworldly spacesuit. The, quote, spaceman David is actually the original, who was taken as an Earth specimen and lived on Phelan for eight years, growing up as a fighter pilot, battling an evil intergalactic dictator. The David who we followed in the last film, who has been on Earth all this time, is a clone, explaining why his body woke up the same age after eight years and could survive the time travel trip back to 1978. It was meant to take the place of David on Earth, but when Max hit the power lines, it not only erased his star charts, it blanked out his true mission of delivering the clone to the original abduction point. There is a war raging light years away with the Phalon Empire and a few survivors from the planet Rylos, holding back a second attack from the evil forces of a reassembled Kodan Empire, who were seemingly defeated in the film The Last Starfighter. <laughs> Spaceman David is among their best starfighters and was personally sent by General Alex Rogan to retrieve his clone and enlist him in the battle, believing that two Davids are better than one, and with the Conan army reinvigorated, it is just a matter of time before they push beyond to the solar system where Earth resides. Clone David agrees, though his head is still reeling with the revelation that he's not a real human, and they board his craft with a female voice nicknamed Tree. Spaceman David didn't have the adventure and bonding with Max that clone David did and having never been reunited with his family he cut himself off from emotions years ago. As a result he's very stoic with his ship. Though genetically identical, the two Davids find they have very little in common during their journey. Arriving on Phalon, clone David is told by Alex that Max is his favorite ship in the fleet, since he has a lot of Earth pop culture in his databanks now. General Alex is hoping that once they're reunited, David and Max could fulfill a very important mission. Spaceman David resents that he is not chosen for this duty. Of course, clone David and Max share many jokes as they catch up. It's revealed that no other pilot could stand to be with Max for more than one mission because of his erratic Earth behavior. Though the pair attempt to get their starfighter skills up to par, because David never got to spend time in video arcades, he doesn't have the same combat flight abilities as Alex. But the bond shared by Max and clone David make their evasive maneuvers the strongest in the fleet, allowing them to push beyond defenses of the enemy better than any other starfighters, and it is decided that Spaceman David and Clone David will be paired together as Max and Tree merge into a single spacecraft to share their two skill sets. 
Of course, there is bickering, but also bonding, as Clone David manages to break down the emotional walls of Spaceman David, reminding him of the joys of life. And when the brooding pilot finally submits to a mind scan from Tree, the female ship becomes a sassy spaceship who starts making passes at Max, while Spaceman David and Clone David start sharing witty banter during their final stand against the enemy. The combined forces of the Davids and their ships are enough to defeat the Kodan Armada, and the universe is saved once again. But just as they celebrate their victory, the Kodan Emperor, Hull, teleports onto their base and tries to kill General Alex Rogan. Spaceman David jumps in the way of the fatal laser blast, saving the general, while Clone David blasts the villain with a disintegrator. With his dying breath, Spaceman David asks Clone David to give their pet dog, Bruiser, a milk bone from him and says, Thanks for giving me my life back. Now live it for both of us. Clone David decides to return to Earth, realizing that Max and Tree now have a bond and can keep each other company. They even introduce a baby ship they've constructed together named Scuzz Bucket. <laughs> David tells them they might want to rethink that one as he boards Centauri's old spaceship car with Alex, who says it'll be nice to visit his home again as credits roll. But there's an end credits scene with the Puck Baron who is waiting for David when he arrives back at his home on Earth. A bitter Agent Crocker shows up with the intent to arrest David, but the Puck Baron suddenly hulks out into a huge beast and scares the lawman away. <laughs> wow. Oh my goodness. <laughs> All right. Take from it what you will. Mm -hmm. Jeremy, what do you got for us? All right. Max returns to Earth in search of David, flying through time to return to the new 1986 timeline after the correction to check up on his old friend. But Max was struck by the time lightning, corrupting his memory files and spitting Max out of the time stream in 2015. Sirens are going off crazy at NASA. The good doctor, Louis Faraday, just happened to be visiting NASA that day when the UAP... An unidentified aerial phenomenon lights up sensors and screens. Suddenly, something oddly familiar about the readings perks up his ear. He lifts his eyes to the screen and sees it, his long-lost white whale. For years, he swore up and down that he saw the most incredible ship. He inspected it himself here at NASA, though the logs and data show no records of this silver bullet that Dr. Faraday describes. But here it is. It was all true. He wasn't crazy. The timeline correction when David returned to 1978 left remnants, or echoes, from the alternate David was lost timeline. David kept things under wrap, besides telling the family eventually over the years. But he's been missing himself for the last five. Max is distorted on entry, but he is drawn back to Fort Lauderdale again. Dr. Faraday urges NASA to hurriedly rush him down, and they must... Get a hold of this ship. Max, searching his memory banks, trying to find what David looked like, finds another human that was experimented on that had a similar test of implanting in his brain, filling up the other 90% with star charts and additional memory that could be useful for Max. Max seeks him out, and they together basically reboot the whole movie again. That's about where I got Dr. Faraday, I wasn't crazy. 
<laughs> I mean, it's so interesting, our starting points. We all just said, let's go back to 86. But then we all go off in wildly different directions. So I think that's fascinating. I will see where the votes take us. Before we get to the votes, it's time to take a break to tell you about our friends over at the Cult Film Club podcast. It's the monthly show where Jamie, Pax, and Sean talk about the weird and obscure movies they love to death. Past shows include coverage of 80s movies like Rad, Mannequin, Young Guns, Overboard, Gleaming the Cube, plus Disney hidden gems like Return to Oz, Midnight Madness. They've even covered The Last Starfighter, as mentioned in my mashup pitch in this episode. You can find Cult Film Club on any of your favorite podcast apps or over at cultfilmclub.com and on Twitter at CFCPod. You'll be glad you did. And now, back to the show. So, Adam, where does your vote fall? Well, here's the thing. I guess with Jeff's, the thing I was thinking throughout is, okay, it doesn't quite pan out like with the, the timeline, only because Jeff and his parents, they wouldn't have known anything about it because they rebooted, you know, in 1978. He got back together with them before anything happened. So they don't know about Max. They don't know about NASA. None of that is, is involved in their lives. So for Jeff to suddenly become the star of it, all i guess you could say that somehow he believed the stories of his older brother over the years or something but that for some reason that was like the sticky part where i was just like i don't know if that works for me wait you're you're saying you're a stickler to timeline <laughs> manipulation here i mean but then i, I went over my planet of the puck marins uh, that, I think, is the real selling point. I think that's where you get people in the seats and kids are going to want a Puckmarin instead of a Porg. And Jeremy, I like yours because there, there's that concept of, oh, okay, now there's more time travel, but this time to the future. But I think I do have to vote for Jeff's mainly because of the cute Ewok factor of the Puckmarins. And I think that's going to make us a lot of money at Sequel Quest Studios. <laughs> All right, Jeff? Well, it seemed like, yeah, both of you guys had, I mean, I guess, Jeremy, yours wasn't the, as much of a clone sort of a situation, but it was definitely, yeah, the, the multiple people dealing with it. Man, I, I kind of get stuck, honestly, because, like, the direction that you took yours, Adam, is much more action-packed. That's not what I feel like I get from this movie. I'm just going with John Avildsen's vision. He yeah, wanted space battles. I I, I'm just, I'm just soft rebooting it with references. Right. That's all it is. But it's so I'm weighing space battle with does this resonate today? And don't get me wrong, like space battle would sell today. I'm not sure in the vein of this that I like in the vein of Flight of the Navigator that I would want to see it myself. So I'm gonna go with Jeremy is what I'm saying. <laughs> oh boy. As I said in the opening, I'm not a fan of this movie, so we'll go with Jeff. That way we can flesh out anything that's needed there, because, oh boy, I, I don't think we could combine all three of these. Mm, that's a good point. That's... <laughs> oh, sorry, Last Starfighter fans. It's true, and that's me. I love it, but, you know, I don't think this you is want from Starfighter Flight of the Navigator myself. film. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's always a chance we can always reboot or make a sequel to The Last Starfighter down the road, Adam. Totally should, yeah. Keep the pitch handy. We might just refresh it a little bit. Jeff, so in your pitch, though, the purpose 
of Max going back in time and realizing he's back there before the Peckmarin's home planet was destroyed. Well, no, he's not going back in time. Okay. Is that, because as I understand the concept of the original movie is that it took eight years for them to fly there or to, were they experimenting on him for eight years? Well, see, that's the, that's the thing that travel, doesn't make sense. Well, it's, it has to do with the theory of relativity is what they okay. were playing. And the fact that if you travel faster than the speed of light, you should actually get younger or not age or whatever because time wouldn't work the same way. So that's where that's going. So either way, like that was where I kind of landed was the fact that he still ended up traveling back to the point where he first picked up David and then went home. So he was going to show up basically probably at the same time as he showed up previously, but with David the last time. Yeah, that that since he'd already traveled back in time, he's already in a place before I'm assuming he had picked up the puck bear. I mean, because this is a year before 1986. Right. So that was, I'm figuring, well, a couple of things is that one is that 1986 was the future, was when he had David, like, and they met him again. And and that's when we found out that the planet had been destroyed. So if we make the planet destroyed in, like, 1986 or the end of 1985, then that, you know, coming back to the same time wouldn't make as much sense plus he he's not limited i mean we could have said it in 1982 but for me that david coming home from college element was the right but max's belief is that the star charts are still in david's mind then did he take them out i didn't think he took them out i thought well, he, just, he like... just scanned and and, yeah. and the rest of it leaked is what he said like what happened when he did it well it leaked so, like, he didn't keep everything in his brain, is what he explained. So, but you're right. Okay, so, yeah, that that was the logic I was trying to sort okay, out. I okay. hope everybody listening was able to follow along. <laughs> but basically, yeah, so he just needed to get those charts again. Right, because the, the other thing is, is they said that they filled his mind, they filled 90% of his brain with random information, which included star charts. So... The other random information could have to do with destroying a comet, was my thought. Okay. So, either way that you want to go, because to get the exact same thing of like, oh, I didn't get all the star charts last time, like, eh, that might be a little thin. But, either way, I kind of like the idea, and that was not quite how they played it in the original movie, but I kind of like the idea that Max needs a navigator, or Max is better when he has a navigator, but that wasn't really the case. He just called him his navigator. Right. So and then the other question that I have just in terms of personality and everything with Max. Yeah. So is he permanently affected by his experience then with David? So even in this point, yeah. like he, it, because he's traveling through time, so he was affected and he stays with that same Pee Wee Herman quality then? I think so. I mean, my thought is, is he's had seven years to get used to it so that he wouldn't be as over the top necessarily. But I think that was what a lot of us loved about the movie is his wacky mm -hmm. quirkiness. So we want him to be still quirky and not as, as robotic as he was in the beginning. Yeah, and the good news is, yeah, then you can cast any kid to play Jeff, essentially. 
Right. You know, at that time. So if we're doing it in the modern day. And even David, too, because David, you know, as a 19 year old, you know, would have probably been recast. So I think what we have to do now, much like E.T. the Ride, is we have to flesh out the Puck Marin homeworld. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Because then the weird thing is, is there such teeny little creatures and they seem very <laughs> for lack of a better term useless like what are they gonna do it's not like they're gonna build houses or anything like that so i would kind of like you were talking about the ewoks i'd kind of see it like that where there's got to be a lot of trees and that maybe they're like monkeys maybe that's i mean that's kind of what we saw him as or it as where they're like hanging by their giant feet and all that. But I kind of pictured them all being about that small. So when he shows up and they're like, you know, you've got to flee. Like, they can't flee. They're like monkeys. What are they going to build a ship? Like, no, you could load them on max, but that would only save so many people. So Yeah, so I mean, I guess that makes sense that they would have their their simple life and their simple planet. But the question also becomes then, are they the only beings on their planet then? Is it's, it's just like a complete planet full of those creatures? Cause it seems like it could also just be a very small planet, like the little prince, you know? <laughs> yeah. Cause I'm wondering like, in addition to the comet, if there needs to be another element of danger as part of Jeff endearing himself to their culture that he maybe protects them from a different threat and while they're and they're trying to maybe explain like there's a meteor coming to kill you but they don't have a way to explain it have to be like c-3po to the ewoks because we never find that you know max is a translator that he understands a bunch of different languages so i just think that would be an interesting wrinkle to have in it is they they can't quite figure it out how to explain to them that there's a danger and yet there maybe is a more immediate danger that they have to protect them from in addition to okay now how we destroying this meteor we probably just want to keep the cast small i was gonna say i don't know right. if, if there's like puck Marin poachers you know that they have to like fight them off yeah. or something then it becomes a whole sub then we run into last jedi where we're gonna do a whole side plot that has nothing to do with the main story <laughs> well then what what about what's jeff's journey right because for me that's what flight of the navigator was is it was a coming of age story where this 12-year-old kid, like, you know, went through all this and I want to go home and blah, 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 blah. So it's the same thing with Jeff, where here's Jeff, who's this loner, who, you know, just hangs out by himself and his parents are saying you need to to get a life and meet a girl and, and do all that sort of a stuff. And then kind of through this, like, this is him, like, becoming an adult in a lot of ways, where he does do something and accomplish something and like prove his worth and and i think some of that like now the the challenge is is if we land it in the same place that i landed it with david ended up going with max and then they take off to the stars together we don't get to see that payoff we don't get to see his parents appreciating him as like wow okay like well and it comes out of nowhere David, oh yes, we understand. You must go to the stars. It was like, huh? Right. <laughs> we were well, following was, David during this time. It's true, but it was more about, for me at least, it was more about the heartbreak of David being too cool for school. And but too cool Max, for school, so he's thing. leaving the planet? No, he's too cool for school. That's why he doesn't want to go with Max. Yeah, that's my point where David has the change of heart instead of Jeff. So, ah, okay. But yeah, that's that's you're right. That's that part that like you were following this whole journey of Jeff, and then the the character arc ends up being David. By the way, there's your title right there: the journey of Jeff. <laughs> journey of Jeff. <laughs> 
That wow. sounds like a JOJ is coming. Independent British film or something. <laughs> Yeah, because, I mean, to me, it just seems like, obviously, Jeff was a little jerk. He was eight! So, and, and we see he grows up to be an okay guy, at least in the absence of David. He grew up, you know, in all the drama of dealing with that. But I just I just wonder if that's maybe part of what it needs to be, because, again, that's, that's at least the characterization we've been given, so maybe he needs to learn something about that. So he's, like, 16 or so no? He's 85, he's 15. Yeah, because I, I just think yeah there has to be a, a real character trait now that he's identified by jeff you work with teenagers i mean maybe that's it we were having a conversation off air that sometimes teenagers don't have a full concept of the world they're focused on themselves maybe that's what it is when he has to now go and save an entire world yeah that's where we see him becoming a bit more caring a bit more outside of himself as the story progresses he's constantly mm. having to make a choice that's beyond his own fear see i guess for me i was kind of picturing jeff as being his motivation was his love for the puck Marin, is that they had that connection Okay. So that's why I don't know about selfishness. My picture of Jeff was more like a loner and more like isolation and more like he doesn't have a like a community or a family or something like that. So maybe that could even be an element like when you're talking about incorporating the time on the Puckmaren planet is that that level of like family and connection and, and something like that that, that the Puckmarins expose him to. Yeah, I mean, I think that is valuable. And like you said, because maybe he's isolated, the Puckmarin does mean so much to him. Yeah, I see what you're saying. He's got to learn something from Max as well. Right. So maybe his decision to join Max in sacrificing themselves, he's willing to sacrifice for the family. But of... if we're setting it up that David's kind of, you know, like you said, too cool for school, a little bit of a jerk now, there's going to be that rift between him and Jeff. So maybe Jeff is always getting upset that Max is talking about how great David was. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, and he's like, can you just shut up about him? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's the question. So like you said, if in the end, your point of, you know, I guess, release for the audience is that suddenly David does come to a point of saying, okay, you know, I, I believe again, and I'm going to be a part of this and all those things. How is he getting involved in the story? Are they sending transmissions to him? Is it when Max discovers that Jeff doesn't actually have any star charts in his head, that they do have to contact David, maybe? See, I just kind of like that. But it comes know. out of nowhere. I and don't like it. You don't like that part. <laughs> Jeff is our hero, and then at the end, David gets this grand right, departure but, to but the you, stars, but for no reason. You're all thinking of David, though, because he's the main character from the last movie. But he's not our main character anymore. Right, but he's still, like, hovering. I mean, he's still... How? That's what I'm asking. How? Like, uh, Halloween 2, that Mike Myers isn't even in, but you're <laughs> thinking about him the whole time. Halloween 3, Jeff. And Michael <laughs> oh, Myers, three. if you would, please. Sorry. <laughs> But yes, and like I say, with the plot point of Jeff being a little annoyed with his brother being brought up every five minutes by Max. But again, I think the audience is going to expect to see this character have some interaction that changes his mind, not just, oh, Jeff left without me. 
I've been thinking about it. I was wrong. Right. Some of it is also that when we, we see Earth and he's been shooting up the fireworks ever since, which is kind of his moment, because this is where they've flipped roles, right? Where in the, in the last one, Jeff was the jerk. But then when okay. Jeff needed to show up, he actually did, and he shot off the fireworks. So now David's doing it. And maybe it's maybe it's even like a post-credit scene. I just picture, like, David just kind of glancing over his shoulder, and then there's there's Max just kind of, I don't know, he can't have a tear in his eye, but just that sort of a, like, <laughs> hey, buddy, and, like, okay, what the heck, or something like that. I don't know. I just Okay, here's what I'll grant you, then. Okay. Here's what okay. would make me go along with it, because, <laughs> yes, I, I did forget about the fireworks moment where he's now helping and the tables have been turned and all those things, but I think that... If David is involved to the extent that the reason he's a jerk and the reason he's been kind of over it and blocking it from his brain is that he never felt happy or fulfilled again throughout uh, you know throughout that life just like knowing what was out there and he's had that yearning to go beyond the stars now and see the universe and so it's always been like this thing inside of him that's been eating him up and so there's a little bit of a justification that it's not just that he grew up it's that the experience kind of left him unfulfilled and so now he's being fulfilled at the end and his family kind of all knew that again even though Jeff knows because of the puck, Marin. I still feel like the parents should have no idea and would not accept the crazy ramblings. And then there's this alien called NASA. Oh, wait, you can't call NASA because it didn't happen yet. You know what I'm saying? Like, they would think he's crazy. So it would definitely be the parents at the NBI. David? He's like, I have to do this. You know, and Jeff's like nodding. He's like, yes. Like, Jeff knows. But the parents are like, what the? Where are you going? But the way it's framed in the story is that we know that it's a good thing. And yeah, the parents are going to be heartbroken again and very confused but for some reason the audience is saying yes go david <laughs> all right all right i can get behind it okay okay so now the question finn wolfhard as jeff oh <laughs> again with this finn wolfhard no. man there are other people out there besides he's too old now isn't he well, you can get the other kid, Gavin. What's his face? Again, they're all too old. Uh, all right, here we go. I am Google searching fifteen-year-old actors. We have Noah Schnapp, Casey Simpson, Noah Jupe, Bryce Geshear, Dakota Lotus. Dakota Lotus wins just because we need that name on you know our poster. Who any of these people are? No. no. Well, wait. Oh, there's so many good choices. Who's the little kid from Iron Man 3 and Jurassic World? Yeah, because right, so he was in Endgame and nobody choices. recognized him. Yeah, let's get that kid. All right, so now here's Dakota Lotus, who booked the role of Scrag in the film Skate God. So there's that guy. Uh, he landed a starring role in the series Coop and Cammy Ask the World as the title character Cooper Wraith. Then there's Casey Simpson, who's one of my votes. Let's see. He's on Nicky, Ricky, Dicky, and Dawn. And then <laughs> Escape from Mr. Lemoncello's Library. What is happening to entertainment? <laughs> I and have then, no idea. If you want a name, my favorite, Jet Jurgensen Meyer is on Bubble Guppies, CSI, Austin and Alley, Jesse, Hot in Cleveland, and released a song, A Lot More Love. 
Yes. That's why I think we have to go with Asher Angel. No, just guy. go unknown at uh, this point. These are all unknown. Jack Dylan Grazier. He's only 16. We love him. Uh, You're over him already? I'm telling you, dude. Google search Jet Jurgesemeyer. <laughs> He is the number 8,021 most popular person on Famous Birthdays. You're actually right. He's got a little round, innocent Does face. He? You, you would, And he's 15? There's no way that kid is 15. He, he looks in, like he's he 11. Was in, he was in the remake of Adventures in Babysitting and in Legends of the Hidden Temple. And this then he performed remake? a song called This Is Your Moment live at famous birthdays i think this picture i'm seeing of him is from 2004 it that's the problem be. yeah i'm just like this tiny chubby face cherub um, <laughs> all right jet jurgensmeyer congratulations yeah! you're our jeff i'm gonna boost his popularity because of jet this. is jeff yes. in journey of jeff <laughs> <laughs> So, oh, the one too. I just want to ask, though, is that what do we think about giving the... Puck Marin a voice? No, a name. Oh. Because I'm guessing a Puck Marin is their species, right? Right. One would assume. Right. Well, obviously, Puck is the first one you'd go with. Sure. So, people, people would just, you just shorten it, and there you got it. Mark, because you'd be thinking of Mark Marin. So, it'd be <laughs> like, oh... Um, I think Scuzz Bucket, like I proposed, <laughs> is, is you know it connects him. And, and, you know, David could always be like, ah, Scuzz, what are you doing? Scuzz Bucket. There was one thing that I was thinking that will make this work today is '80s nostalgia. So to give him like a, a pop name from 1985, I think would be would be huge. I mean, just call him Wham. What happened in 1985? What happened in 1985? That's your Google search? Yes, it is. The World Live Aid concert. There you go. New Coke. Uh, it was the coldest winter in eastern USA. Wait, wait, wait. No. Calvin and Hobbes. We're... Boom. There it is. Calvin and Hobbes debuted Hobbs. in 1985. But 1978 oh, when true. he returned. Yeah. So they waited seven years to name him? Okay, 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 okay. So let's do 1980. How about that one? (laughs) Carter, after President Jimmy Carter. Oh, yeah, because all 12-year-olds loved President Carter. I don't know. David was pretty insistent. Who's the president? Jimmy Carter, duh. I think he should be called Alf. Alf? Come on. (laughs) What are you doing, Jeff? I'm telling you, Alf! If it was 1985, yes, but this is 1978, as Jeremy just told us. Okay. So I think it's obvious that he would be named after Gene Simmons, and we would reveal that the Puck Baron has a very long tongue we just didn't see in the last movie. We'd just call him Gene. Come on. You'd name him something Star Wars-y. That's true. Star Wars holiday special. Lumpy. In the Star Wars holiday special. (laughs) Lumpy the Puck Baron. Garfield debuted. Garfield, yeah. And he's orange. He is orange-ish. I like the Garfield connection, but he calls him Garf. Garf. I'm okay. I'm okay with that. Little Garf the Puck Baron. (laughs) That sounds pretty good. 
And then the only other thing we didn't bring up, you get Sarah Jessica Parker back for a cameo. But I like the idea that now that David is older, he obviously had a crush on her when he was at NASA. So, of course, when he grows up and now he would be essentially her same age, you know, he has a little a side adventure before this all happens where he finds her and goes on a date with her. And he goes to the Twisted Sister concert that she was at and he meets her there. There's got to be something with that. Yeah. yeah, no, I don't think so. That's <laughs> that's super sketchy. Like, you gotta give her at least a cameo, though. I yes, mean, I would be saying she's now one of... Uh, she basically replaces Dr. Faraday, almost, at NASA. Wow. Well, no, but like, but she's, she's the same person at right. the same age no, in this no, timeline. No. no. Why would she change? Because she's now almost 60? No, what are you talking? Oh, we're not in 2015. We're not in your story. Uh, still. Hey, they did it in Blade Runner. They recreated Rebecca. Oh, yeah, so. not a fan of that choice. She could Very be somebody's well. mom. Again, I just think like a cameo of some sort. But I think it's hilarious because then they'll interview her on the press circuit. She's like, I don't even remember making the first one. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, I think, you know, you already had your climax figured out and and I'm satisfied now that, uh, that David has some justification for why he wants to take off and go to space that could that could work and we got garf the puck marin and he finally has a name folks after all these years you were wondering now you know we've done it for you and with that we ourselves are gonna take off for a flight yes there's adventure all around and soon more to come yes next month we will be back with another all new episode in the meantime enjoy what we're bringing you with our rewind episodes it must actually feel like it's some sort of time travel for people they're like wait who's this justin guy wait jeremy was gone like there's a lot of mentions that come up on the show that we recorded in sequence that now that we release the episodes out of sequence may be confusing to some of you but hopefully you can overlook that and just enjoy the imaginary fake movie fun yeah why don't i point out all the problems with our show yeah well done well done you're discussing the timeline manipulation that we're working with and its faults here adam much like Uh. this movie has its own (laughs) timeline faults so i don't know jeff actually solved my issue with all his theory of relativity jeff got it science there you go or wikipedia at least (laughs) well until next time see you later navigator We thank you for listening to this episode of Sequel Quest and invite you to continue the fake movie fun on social media. Submit your ideas for future episodes to sequelquestpod at gmail.com or sqpod on Twitter. The films and characters discussed on Sequel Quest are the property of their respective studios and license holders. No copyright infringement is intended. Okay, Turkey, take it away. <laughs> I don't do a good Pee Wee Herman. <laughs> I don't think anyone does. No. <laughs> and for a while there, it's kind of like anyone who's got a Cosby impression, you can't bring that out anymore. No, it's, it was rough. He's back, though. We still we love him now. All right. Not not Cosby. Paul Rubens. <laughs> <laughs> We're off to a great start, folks. <laughs> that That's was it. pretty good. That was pretty good. That's the show. There you go. <laughs> what we got. That is the show. Journey of Jeff. 
That's what's going to be on the, the shirt, the yeah. show art. <laughs> I'm sure it will. I'm sure. Oh, right. Uh, now I got to go get a pic. I got to make sure I don't. Je- Jeff, don't let me forget Jet Jurgensmeyer. Yeah. I got to make sure I save Jurgen. him here real quick. I'm going to do a screen cap so I don't lose him because otherwise I'll feel very bad that there's no Jet Jurgensmeyer. We promised <laughs> sure. him. What did you call I'm, him? I'm sure we can find him on social cherub. media. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we we got to get the oh, word out. Maybe kid. he'll find us, and uh, maybe. maybe he it has been cast already. We just maybe we'll know. hear from his parents, and we'll get in big trouble. <laughs> How dare you speak of my child that way? <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I... This has been a presentation of the Retro Network. <laughs>